Good morning, Hope Church. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning, and it is good to be back with you to share the Word of God and to journey through the Word of God with you that we may be edified in Him and in His Word. We have a picture here of King James V of Scotland. James became the king of Scotland at the tender age of 17 months old when his father, James IV, was killed in battle. James V was a lover of music, uh, evidently an accomplished lute player and a pretty rowdy and raucous singer. James was known as the king of the commons because he would don commoners' clothes, adopt a clever alias, and sneak out of the castle and go on walkabouts around Scotland to mingle with his people. He'd go to pubs and drink pints and sing. He'd go and check out the farms and see how their agrarian economy was doing. He would even lodge with his subjects, and they had no idea that they were giving lodging to their king. More about James V in a minute. We are going through the Bible in a year. We went through Genesis. Pastor Greg's been preaching us into Exodus. So we are in this time period of the Hebrew people coming out of slavery in Egypt and wandering in the desert for 40 years before they go into the Holy Land. And this is captured in the first five books of the Bible. These are called the Law, or the Books of Moses. Our our Jewish neighbors call this the Torah. And um, in these books, God is revealing to Moses, and Moses is writing all this stuff down. God is revealing how to be a separate people from the pagan nations around them. Remember, Israelites have been in slavery in, in Egypt for 400 years. So God is giving them a national identity. God is also giving them laws and, and, and rules and ways to relate to him as the divine one and, and rules and regulations about how to relate to one another uh, as a people, as a culture, as a society. One of the books of the law is the book of Leviticus. And that documents a lot of the sacrificial, a lot of the tabernacle, or in later years, the temple worship rituals uh, that the priests would follow. At the end of Exodus, God sets aside one of the tribes, the tribe of Leviticus, and they serve as the priests for the people of Israel. Now, I fully admit that Leviticus is not at the top of my Bible reading list. It's probably not at the top of yours because you get into it and it's some pretty bloody, gross stuff and we just don't uh, relate to it as as 21st century people. Um, But let me very humbly and very gently say to you 
that Leviticus just might be one of the most important books in the Bible. And if, if you miss the message of Leviticus, you're going to be pretty lost going through the rest of the Old Testament. And when we get to the ministry and the, the mission of Jesus, you're going to be really lost. So we're going to spend time in, in Leviticus today. There is tons of rich content here. I could preach from this book for weeks, but I'm not going to do that. We have this one day. We're going to read a chapter. We're going to look at what's going on, and then we're going to inspect what that means to us as Christians, okay? Before we jump into the text, though, I want to draw your attention to the theme of the book, and we can see that among many places in Leviticus 20.26. It says, you shall be holy to me, For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is a recurring theme all throughout Leviticus and really throughout the Old Testament. But God's expressing his desire for his covenant people to be separate from the pagan nations around them. And he's really inviting them into a relationship with himself as the one true God. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Turn to Leviticus 1, if you would, please. If you have, um, if you see those black pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 97. And what we're going to do today is is I'll read through the entire first chapter. So we're going to walk into this bloody world of the animal sacrificial system of the ancient Israelites. You ready to go on that journey? Okay, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd... He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting." Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift is a burnt offering from the flock, from sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs 
he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the sides of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have to admit to you that when I read passages like this, my first and natural reaction is, Ugh! I mean, this is pretty gross stuff, pretty bloody stuff. But these are the Israelites doing corporate worship. This is them going to church. Now, what is, is going on here? Well, obviously, these are instructions for how the priest and the worshiper offer up a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, these burnt offerings could be offered as as a free will offering, an act of devotion, a a non-compulsory act of worship to God. They could be offered for the forgiveness of sins, for the people, sins against people and sins against God. Even There are even provisions for unintentional sins in Leviticus. Um, we read often in the Bible about this clean and unclean. You see it all the way into the New Testament, ritually clean, ritually unclean. Burnt offerings were used in those ritualistic purity um, system. When someone is unclean, they would bring an offering to the temple. So within all the details and variances of these sacrifices that the Israelites practiced, God is calling his people into relationship with himself He is calling his people into right relationship with one another corporately and as individuals, as his chosen people set aside. My lovely and and beautiful wife, Charlotte, sitting over here, comes from uh, a family of ranchers on both sides of her family. And she tells this funny story about her, her grandmother, coming outside, and if the wind is blowing just right in the direction from the feedlot, her grandmother would say, smells like money. Have you ever driven up through the panhandle by those feedlots? I mean, it may sound like money to a rancher, but to us, maybe, maybe not so much. When we read passages like this in Leviticus, I think we lose sight of what's, what's going on here in the tabernacle and in the temple. I mean, the priests are offering this sacrifice every day. And if it's one of the big national Jewish holidays, all of Israel is coming up to Jerusalem with their sacrifices. So you have lowing cattle and bleeding sheep and goats and cages full of birds and all of the smells 
that go with it. All those things that animals do when they're nervous and crowded in a place, it probably smelled more like a feedlot than it did like church from our perspective. So what's going on here in Leviticus 1? Let's look at the text and pull out a couple things and inspect what is going on here. Right out of the gate, Moses is instructed by God to speak to the people of Israel. Stop right there. That is very significant. This is the word of God. And and the Lord is instructing Moses to share it with the people. This was very unique among the Middle Eastern cultures of the time. It is unique throughout history and unique today that, that cults would share the priestly duties openly. It's, it's quite the opposite. Even today, if you go into a, 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 a village, the medicine man, the shaman, the witch doctor has all of this special knowledge of how to do their spiritual craft. Not the case in Israel. The word of God works for the people. And in doing this, God built in accountability for the priests. So there would be um, accountability and they could not abuse their duties as priests. The word of God is for the people. Um, We see that the offering is to be a male without blemish. Now, why a male? And why without blemish? Well, in short, this is because, because God wants our best. So, Um, First, as a matter of value, a bull, um, even today, a stud, has more economic value than a cow. And it's it's a matter of progeny. Uh, uh, A a cow can only bear one calf at a time, while a bull can impregnate several cows. So it, it is economically more viable. So God wants our best. Why without blemish? Again, God wants our best. The priests would actually inspect the livestock, inspect their coats, their horns, their eyes, their teeth. If anything about them wasn't perfect, the priests would reject it and wouldn't take it as a sacrifice. Again, God wants our best. Did you notice in verses 10 and 14 how the Lord said, if it is an offering from the sheep or goats, or if it is a, a bird offering of turtle doves or pigeons, this was done to accommodate people from all economic brackets. So if you couldn't afford a bull, you could bring a sheep or a goat. If you couldn't afford a sheep or a goat, you could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. We actually see this in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2 when Mary and Joseph goes to the temple. And Mary is offering her sacrifice of turtle doves and pigeons so that she may be pure after childbirth. If you want to go read that law in Leviticus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Mary is following this exact same law. But the point being, she's bringing birds Joseph and Mary were poor. They were poor teenage kids. But again, we see here 
God is breaking down barriers. He is inviting his people, regardless of their economic status, of their background, to be in fellowship with himself. So we notice in verse 4 that this is for atonement. So sin is very much in play here. So that Hebrew word um, carries with it the dynamic range of, of a covering, a covering of sin, of a, a wiping away, of, of an expiation of sin. It also has with it the, the sense of a diversion of God's wrath. A diversion of God's wrath. So the worshiper would place his hands on the bull and in symbolism transfer his sins to the bull okay, and probably say some kind of prayer. This was common in the atonement sacrifices in the law. So make no mistake about it, this is a substitutionary sacrifice. That worshiper knows that he is guilty, that he has sinned. He's transferring those sins to the animal who will die in his place, who will pay the penalty for his sin. So while all this is going on, um, he would take a knife He would cut the bull's throat, cut the animal's throat, and the priest would stand there with a bowl and catch the blood coming out of the animal's neck. Then the worshiper would would flay the sacrifice, take the hide off, cut off its head, start dicing it apart, cut out its innards. And while he's doing that, the priest is over at the altar sprinkling or splashing the blood around the altar. Talk about smelling on a hot summer day. That must not have smelled all that good. Um, this is pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Um, so once all the preparations are done, the priest would take the pieces of the animal and place them up onto the altar. Now, there's one thing that jumped out at me that I want to share with you. It was in verse 9. But its entrails and its legs, he, and that's the worshiper, shall wash with water. The entrails, folks, are the intestines. So the worshiper offering the sacrifice would clean out the intestines. So at the top end, you've got cud and stuff coming out of the stomach, and you know know it's at the bottom end of the intestines. Um, So the worshiper would wash this. Again, why? Because they were not going to offer the excrement of an animal to the Lord. They were only going to give the Lord the good parts. None of the garbage is going to the Lord. So when the the, the priests arrange all this stuff on the wood, on the fire, um, it says that, that he will take the pieces, the head, and the fat. I want to point out that word fat there. Well, it is fat, but it's also the good stuff. I want you to think of that as the good stuff because it also includes the filet mignon, the New York strip, okay, the sirloin steak, the, the Nolan Ryan hamburger patties. It's, it's all the good stuff. The worshiper is giving all the good stuff to the Lord. 
that probably didn't smell all that bad. That probably smelled a bit more like the 4th of July barbecues we're going to be firing up over the next couple of days. But again, this is pretty... It's pretty gross stuff. I'm looking at some of the faces here, and I can see people squinting at me like, oh, that's gross. Um, but they're doing church. This is corporate worship. You know, we walk into Hope Church, and we, we smell carpet, maybe, uh, maybe coffee. And at the end of our services, our, our deacons aren't out here with mops cleaning up blood. They're, they're washing out a coffee pot and putting up the cookies and turning out the lights and locking the doors. Uh, I'm sure glad we don't worship like that anymore. Aren't you? That'd just be a bit too much for me to deal with. So this is certainly from the kind of worship that we have today. But um, what's going on here? And, and to, to take a look at this, we've got to remember what the theme of Leviticus is. Do you remember what it is? Be holy as I the Lord your God, am holy. So we live in a very informal society. You've probably seen pictures um, from past generations where they get together for a portrait and they put on their Sunday best, their best dresses, their best suits, and they take a picture and they have their formal dour faces. There was a time not too long ago with, when if you got on an airplane, you put on your suit and your tie or a dress. If you went on a date, you put on a suit and a tie and a dress. If you went to a picnic at a friend's house, you put on a suit and a tie and a dress. I mean, we have become an informal society. It shows in our speech. It shows in how we dress. It shows in how we relate to one another. And it also impacts how we worship in the church. It impacts um, how we how we pray. It impacts how we relate to one another, how we do church. And I, I, I would even go as far as to say that sometimes we mistake informality for intimacy with God. We mistake informality with intimacy. And, and to our detriment, I think, because God is not like us. He is not one of us. God is perfect in holiness. He is perfect in goodness and righteousness. He's morally and spiritually excellent, pure, different than we are. This ESV version of the Bible that I am reading from has 611 verses that have at least one occurrence of the word holy. So this is something God is very interested in and wants us to know about, is holiness. Um, and we see this all throughout the Bible, those 611 verses. I've, I've put two of them in the insert and have two of them up here. Let's read um, this one from Revelation together. We just sang this in that beautiful song. Thank you, praise team. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Beautiful stuff. Now that is from the book of Revelation. That's the Apostle John getting a glimpse into the throne room of God, uh, worshiping the Lamb. Now in Hebrew literature, 
the speakers or the writers, um, they make their points by repeating uh, a word or a phrase. So we see Jesus in the New Testament saying, truly, truly, I say to you. What Jesus is saying is, hey, what I'm about to say to you is immensely true. So here in Revelation, we see holy, holy, holy three times. So when that appears three times, the author is saying, this is unimaginable holiness. God is just off the charts holy. We can't even grasp how holy he is. Um, And interestingly enough, this is the only attribute of God in the scriptures that we see with this triple amplification. We don't see good, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. We only see holy, holy, holy. And this is the holiness that caused the prophets and the apostles to recoil in the midst of the Lord God himself. So, a couple weeks ago in Exodus chapter 3, when God calls Moses, Moses turns his face because he's scared. He's terrified in the midst of God's holiness. In the book of Isaiah chapter 6, God is calling Isaiah into his ministry. Isaiah's response is, Woe to me, a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. He was terrified. In that same chapter, even the angels are covering their face from God's glory and his holiness. And my favorite example is the calling of the apostle Peter. We see that in Luke chapter 5. You know the story. Peter and his buddies have been out fishing all night long. They've caught nothing. They come into shore. They're cleaning their nets. They're wiped out after a night. Jesus comes walking along the beach. He hops in Peter's boat and says, hey, push out a little bit and put down your nets. Well, Peter does it probably somewhat reluctantly. They go out. They throw down the nets. And they get this miraculous catch of fish. So much they can't pull it into the boat. So much that the boat is starting to sink. What does Peter do? Does he go up to Jesus and start giving high fives like, yeah, oh yeah, look at this fish we caught. No, he doesn't. Peter falls to his face in the boat and says to Jesus, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful and the sinful man. He's in the presence of holiness, and he knows it. You see, God is not like one of us. He is a different being altogether. He is not your golfing buddy. He is not your shopping sister whom you meet for a coffee at Starbucks and then go wander around the Baybrook Mall for a long afternoon of shopping. God is perfect. He is holy. He is set apart, perfect in his moral purity and in his righteousness. So let's contrast that against our natural condition as human beings. What do we see when we look around us? What do we see when we turn on the TV? We see war, ravaging innocence, indescribable death and destruction. 
We see greed, deception, lies, rebellion, violence in our streets, in our largely secular culture. We celebrate and tout as rights things that separate us from God, things that separate us from one another, things that God has already called sin. We see pride. We see selfishness. We see addiction tearing apart our families, tearing apart our communities. And we could go on and on with examples. But it's not a pretty scene out there, what we human beings do. And the, the truth of the matter, though, is it's been this way since the beginning, since the fall. And um, it's, it's highlighted throughout Scripture, um, highlighting just a few verses. Solomon wrote, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I have to confess to you all that I am not up here preaching at you. I am up here commiserating with you. Um, No one is immune. No one is exempt from sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. When I was 15 years old, um, I dropped to my knees in tears for the first time, and I cried out to God. I cried out to God. And in the 40 years that I've been walking with Christ, sometimes I've been walking in peace and harmony. Sometimes I've been running away from or hiding from God. Sometimes I've been soaring with him on mountaintops. And sometimes I've been crawling back to him on my hands and on my knees. All that to say, y'all, I need a savior. I am hypersensitive. The older I get, the more sensitive I become to my own sin and the fact that I'm broken. And I need a savior. Paul wrote, for the wages of sin is death. Have you ever jumped into sin knowing you were jumping into sin? I have. Knowingly done it. And and afterwards, you, you feel that separation from God. You maybe feel that separation from other people. Okay, that, that's just a taste of the death that comes with sin. But what Paul is talking about here is not a feeling. What Paul is talking about here is a very legal, um, substantial guilt. He's not talking about a subjective feeling. This is a legal guilt, as though you're standing in a courtroom, you've had a violation, the gavel comes down, you're guilty. That's what Paul's talking about. He was a lawyer, remember? That's what he's talking about when he says the wages of sin are death. So, left unattended, that ultimately leads to eternal separation from God, to what we call in church circles, hell. We have seen that God is holy, that he is morally excellent, that he's pure and unstained, 
But he is also just in all his dealings. He is righteous, morally right. He cannot hand down an unjust decision. So he has to act. He has to lower the gavel on guilt when it comes to sin. So how did that be holy as I am holy thing work out for Israel? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? More thumbs down. Yeah. Over the next 1,400 years to the time of Christ, we're going to see Israel constantly falling down, falling into this cycle of disobedience, falling into this cycle of sin. They couldn't do it on their own. So I would like to wrap this up by looking at a couple verses from the book of Hebrews. And let's see what a New Testament writer has to say about this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the author says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The atonement of the sacrificial system was a temporary covering, and we are told that the the sacrifices were a reminder, a reminder of sin, and the blood of animals could never permanently take away the sins of the people. He goes on in in verse 11 and says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, once and for all. In verse 10, uh, we didn't read this, but I want to read it to you now. The author said, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Yes, God is holy. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he is just. Yes, he must judge sin. But he is also loving and compassionate and merciful. As the completely sinless Lamb of God, Jesus was the only one that could satisfy God's standard of perfect holiness. He was the perfect Lamb of God. As a man... He could bleed on the cross. He could die on the cross that we might be forgiven. As a man, he died the death that we deserve. He was our substitute 
on the cross. He took our sins and God's wrath and the penalty for our sins upon himself on the cross at Calvary. Do you see the parallels here, folks? Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He was the perfect Lamb of God. Forty years after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, the Roman army leveled Jerusalem, including the temple. And on that day, the sacrificial system that we've been reading about ceased to exist, has never been reinstated since that time. Why? Because it had served its purpose, and it was no longer necessary because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament covenant. I didn't read all of Romans 6.23, but I want to read that for you. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So James V wanted to interact with his people to some degree. He wanted to have some kind of relationship with them. Very unique for a monarch. But like you and like me, James V was a sinner. History doesn't record what good he might have done among his people. But at the end of his walkabouts, he returned to his palace, he returned to his courts, and he died at the age of 31 years old. As we have seen, God wants to be in relationship with his people. In fact, he is still calling us into relationship with himself today. Jesus being defined was not one of us, but he loved us so much that he stepped off of his heavenly throne, poured himself into human flesh, and was born to two poor, scared, but faithful teenagers from Nazareth. The king of creation, the promised Messiah from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms, humbled himself, stepped off his throne, and walked among us, and completed the work that we could not do on our own. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He was the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, who died once for all that we may be forgiven. For us, to experiencing, for us to experience that covering, that wiping away of sins, the Bible says that we very simply need to place our faith, place our trust into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, uh, dying for our sins, and his forgiveness, his rising to life again on the third day. It is by faith, in placing our faith in him alone, by which we are saved. So where are each one of you 
in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you are in a good place, walking along in peace with the Lord. Amen. Thank the good Lord for that. Maybe some of you are struggling through a period of difficulty, of of storms in your life that have really challenged and um, affected your faith, impacted your intimacy with God. Maybe you're struggling with a sin that has you exhausted and discouraged and questioning whether or not you're even a Christian. Maybe this Jesus thing is just completely new to you and you're hearing this today for the first time. And you're thinking, hey, I want to give this uh, some more thought. Maybe the, the Lord is encouraging you to learn more about it, to look into it, to start reading your Bible, to come back to Hope Church and, and be exposed to the ministry of the Word. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit of God is tugging on your heart and drawing you closer and closer to the heart of the Lord. Maybe today is the day where you take that step of faith and you experience complete forgiveness, experience God's peace. Let me remind you, all of you, that God loves you. God loves you. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is loving. He knows exactly what you're going through in your life. He knows exactly where you've been, what you're struggling with, what your fears are. And he is calling you into relationship with himself. He wants to walk with you through this short, fragile, fleeting, difficult life and walk with you as we all eventually step into eternity. God loves you, and he wants to be in relationship with you. If you feel God speaking to you today, tugging on your heart, um, and you'd like to pray, the leader of our prayer ministry, Jerry Brezik, and I are going to be up front after the service, uh, we are there to listen to you um, and to go with you in prayer into the presence of the most holy and faithful and compassionate God. So we invite you to come up and pray if, if there's anything on your heart and you're so moved to do so. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Um, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that he humbled himself and stepped off of his heavenly throne and walked among us to show us the way to you, to show us the way of forgiveness, to show us the way of eternal life with you. We bless your name this day, Lord God. Meet All who hear this prayer, exactly where they are in their lives, remind them of the great love that you have for them and of your faithfulness that you will never, ever leave or forsake any of your own. We bless your name on this day, Lord Jesus. We pray 
in your holy name. Amen.